Tonight, I'd like to talk about the happiness of a Buddha, which means you. But um, as Mary Grace did last night, uh, I also would like to share with you a um, poem, a prologue poem, that I think captures a little bit about what I will talk about as I go on. This is another poem from the ecstatic poet, Sufi poet Hafiz. It's called, Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you are with the friend now and look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing the drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of sun from the sacred hands and the glance of your beloved and my dear from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. You are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight him or it or her. What actions of yours bring freedom and love? Whenever you say the name of the divine, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so they could finally kiss each other and applaud all your nourishing wisdom. Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet one, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. I don't think this really needs much interpretation. I think that over the course of these days, uh, you have, um, you have, you know, just from the process of settling in, coming face to face with everything that you have faced, using it all in the service of meditation, in the service of awakening, that clearly the the rubbing of your attention, of your heart against, uh, against your body, against your, your, um, your mind, has um, awakened you to a sense of, of immediacy and presence. Uh, 
and you, you have discovered, I, I think I can speak for everyone, you, you look like it anyway, you look as I suspected at the beginning, you look in spite of whatever may be still going on in your mind, you look more here, you look beautiful, you know, bright. A few people sat down in the, some uh, meetings I had and I was just bowled over today. I let it out a few times saying, you look so beautiful. <laughs> Sometimes I get a little carried away. <laughs> But you've been walking a path, a path that we know doesn't go anywhere. Just to, as I mentioned several times during the retreat, the beginning is here, the middle, the path itself is here, and the, and the end is here. Isn't it amazing? Nothing's really happened. We've been here the whole time. <laughs> but in the meantime, what a journey, what a profound journey all of us have been on together. So, um, so uh, alive when in the in the quietness, we're not just passing by. We're actually uh, we've been experiencing things much more intimately than we usually do. Something about this uh, time that you've taken, this gift that you've given yourself to stop and really register what's going on. This reflects a lot of what the Buddha did. This is, as we said, it's not an accident that you're here. This is the reverberation of this awakening that happened 2,500 years ago. And you hear so much about, um, about the Buddha and this and that, and you hear a little bit about it's all about making you happy, and it's, it's not, it's clearly, as you can see, it's not about the happiness of a good mood. Because in the course of our awakening process, and the end isn't a good mood necessarily, but there's so, it's so much about learning to be in harmony with how things are. To be in harmony with the truth, that's what it's about. And we can see that when we're not in harmony with how things are in any moment, when we're in a state of reactivity, we suffer. And when, we, when our attitude shifts or when there's openness, we tend to feel a return to sanity or a return to balance. Same thing that happened to the Buddha. It, having heard the teachings, it, it sounds kind of obvious and simple, but it if you can imagine this person who's all by himself and nobody really around to tell him what to do and just mucking around and, and you can see these minds. I don't know if I, I think I shared with one of the groups the teaching from Bhante Gunaratna where he said uh, sometime in this point in the, in the um, process of meditation you will come to the, you will discover that you're completely crazy that your mind is a shrieking madhouse, barreling down the hill, out of control and hopeless, or helpless, I forgot which one. He says, uh, it's not a problem. Don't worry about this. It's, uh, it's always been this way, you just never noticed. 
But you can imagine, since all of us humans are programmed to be a little bit crazy, uh, how challenging it might have been for that historical person to, in that morass of, of so many views, of so many, um, so many stories, so many conflicting desires and so much, uh, so much tenderness and our pride so easily broken, how you would find your way in the middle of that. But he did. And he was actually called, he wasn't, he was called Sukiya, the happy one. He was not, as I often like to mention, he was not called the great sufferer even though the first teaching that he offered was the teaching on the first noble truth that there is in our lives, there is stress, that the very definition of uh, our birth is that it is the leading cause of death, of stress, of not getting what we want, not wanting what we get, pain, what, what were the lines? Uh, lamentation, grief, sorrow, uh, dukkha, dukkha, despair. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's the garden variety, dukkha, dukkha. And then the, the, uh, the variety, the kind of uh, stress that comes from things being in a constant state of flux. This is what he shared. And the stress that we all experience just from the continual impingement. Mary Grace spoke last night about these judge, this judging mind, how it's conditioned, how we are constantly at the effect of causes and conditions and contingencies, things constantly affecting us and us affecting things. And we're just, we are moved by this sea of conditions. And that is a bit crazy making. It blows our mind that we're to some degree out of control and there's stress in that. And a lot of our compulsive attempt to try to control and try to separate ourselves out, try to, try to uh, feel like we're, um, that we really exist independently uh, is stressful itself, but it comes innocently out of uh, this, what the Buddha called Sankara Dukkha. And more generally, just all the work that it takes to get through a day, get through a life. The, you wake up and you got to wash the body and you got to constantly trim it and, <laughs> and you have to feed it and you have to feed it right and then you have to clothe it and then you have to clothe it right and you, all that has to go in. And then the, then the, um, the Groundhog Day part of it, you just keep doing it every day, getting up and... <laughs> again and again, and that's stressful. And why do we have to, why, why did the Buddha ask us to look at this? Because the not being in harmony with this as a fact adds even, it adds more stress trying to get away from it. It adds more stress being in contention with reality. And that expresses itself as this kind of craving, this constant craving for pleasure and avoidance of pain and craving to make it all stop. 
it's that tendency toward delusion, just wanting to go unconscious. It's why we love sleep so much. Sometimes called the poor person's nirvana. <laughs> but in a more serious, more serious light, that desire to make it all stop, the ultimate aversion mixed in with delusion is that suicidal impulse. And just the enormous worlds that we can go to to uh, create um, fantasies of, of well-being to kind of lift out of, of having to deal with the stress. I knew that I, that I might be, there might be a reason tonight to read this poem that really speaks to the way that our mind uh, proliferates in this uh, actually a stressful attempt to find pleasure. This is a poem from that many of you have heard before if you've sat with me, but I, it just is so reflective of our mind's tendency and the same tendency of the hearts and minds of the people that lived at the time of the Buddha and basically the same messages about what will actually bring relief. Fortunately, this poet, you could tell, had some sense of humor and saw the, what, what his mind was doing and that's a lot of, a, a lot of what happens is once we see what our mind is doing, once we've made that shift from simply being carried along by unconscious, our patterns unconsciously to noticing them, they are actually funny. They can be. Something lightens up in us. That's a genuine laughter. It's not the laughter of foolishness. It's the laughter of wisdom. That has something to do with the happiness of a Buddha. So this is from George Bilger and his poem is called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French silk shirt. <laughs> the reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mystery of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high rise down the road, <laughs> and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. <laughs> I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin 
she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. <laughs> a woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So it's likely that you have seen some version of this poem in your mind over the course of the retreat. You being the, the Buddha knowing the Dharma, the Buddha sitting on, under your Bodhi tree and noticing the classic phenomena that uh, often is our particular version of the, uh, of the misplaced faith in certain um, pleasures in, or, in order to find happiness. You've likely had the, the uh, two sides of this kind of proliferation, one called the VV, and I was going to do the VR first, but I'll do the VV first. The, v, the VV is the, um, the, word, the initials for Vipassana Vendetta, where there's someone who, who triggers a feeling in you and an unpleasant feeling, and before you know it, your mind has constructed this person as the public or private enemy number one, the, see, the reason for all of your misery, and the construction project of me and mine in that little dream. Remember, we're constructing a person who's having this big struggle, a, a person who does not exist, an, a completely imagined version. We have just entered into that world of revenge and hatred and, and how things should be. The reverse is also true with the VR, someone on the retreat Mary Grace says you mostly see people's feet. You may like the way they, their socks are, their walk, and it triggers a pleasant feeling. And before you know it, because often there is a, um, there's, we have much more of a habit of entering into that world of, of um, daydreaming than we do in, in having moments of mindfulness, but eventually we wake up in it. But that pleasant feeling produces that grasping that I talked about the other night. Grasping leads to a sense of craving. Craving leads to a sense of that pressure of that leads to a sense of what the Buddha called bhava or becoming. And so we literally take birth in our mind into this beautiful romantic fantasy. And within three minutes, you have dated, mated, married, divorced, tra traveled, you know, whatever. And all of it, the beauty of sitting under your Bodhi tree is you can see that nothing really happened, but your mind went on a big ride. And, it, but the, and that's the good news about see, being here. You know that nothing really happens. Your mind went on a wild fantasy. But these kind of fantasies occupy our minds pretty regularly in our lives. And we live a long time in that, in that world. This is called samsara, the endless wandering, how moment by moment we take birth into, into these worlds of a person. That world in our mind is a person who doesn't exist. 
And what does that obscure? That obscures your Buddha nature sitting under the Bodhi tree. You miss the, the aliveness, the immediacy, the freedom, the peace that you um, begin to perhaps touch in those spaces between those um, VVs and VRs. So the Buddha and the happiness of the Buddha is not so far away. It is, as Kala Rinpoche says, it is you. It is in this very room. You are the Buddha, he says. And he says, why don't you understand this? I think I said this the first night. Because there's a veil, and that veil is that little imaginary version of yourself that plays in your mind. And that veil, unless it can be uh, lifted, you, you wander a long time confused. But once you see through that veil, even one time, you can begin to you can begin to refer to that, uh, I think he puts it like, that ever-present openness and clarity. So notice what is the state of your mind right now after your last drama has, has ceased. You know, the, the last one's gone right now, hopefully. And before the next one comes, Notice what your experience is when you don't look back and you don't look ahead. Just for a moment. And you don't, don't um, do anything special. You just let yourself be here without looking back and not looking ahead. And notice what you experience. What's felt? And I've asked this question countless times. I've done quite a little study of it over the years, inviting us to see what it's like under our Bodhi tree when we're not consulting our memory. And I'm curious, since it's the last night, I'm curious what you would say, what do you experience after the last drama has passed and before the next one comes? What's here? Peace? At ease, contentment, contentment. balance, balance. Stillness. stillness, excitement, excitement. Freedom. freedom. Wow. <laughs> now, what did we actually do just now? What we did is we put ourselves, you could say, face to face with the Buddha, face to face with uh, the natural um, wakefulness that, um, that's here. If I asked you to stop being awake or stop being aware, what happens? See, it's just right there, it's primary. And what we did for one moment is we suspended that, um, we suspended that, that, um, that view of ourselves that, we're, that normally defines us. So this is the opportunity that you're actually closer to than you know by coming to retreat. You're much closer to the Buddha than, uh, than the, the version of yourself as a meditator that you construct in your mind. 
the version of yourself as a meditator that you construct in your mind is maybe, and it's legitimately so in one relative sense, I'm a new meditator. I'm, or I'm an old meditator, but I don't get it. But maybe someday I will. And I'm, I'm still not okay. But someday maybe I'll be okay. And it's some, usually some version of, of insufficiency. Yet, almost to a person, if you're checking, the moment you, that story passes, and before the next one comes, you recognize that, hmm, on present evidence, when I'm right here, there is no evidence for not being enough, not being awake, what I do find evidence of is peace, balance, freedom, many things that are just natural to us, that we, in the, in the momentum of conditioning, overlook and overshoot. And this was the open secret that the Buddha discovered sitting under the Bodhi tree, is that you are the Buddha. Why don't you see this? Because there's a veil. And the main veil that Kala Rinpoche points to is the, the belief that you're not the Buddha. That you're a separate individual. And his point, as is the point of the Buddha, is that you must, at some point in the span of your practice, see through this illusion. And that seeing through that illusion, as you can see, is a, a moment of mindfulness away. It's a split second away. Now, Kala Rinpoche, another Tibetan teacher who I just lo I love the pithiness and the straightforwardness of their teachings. He, in acknowledging our, our nature, he says, isn't it true? And he uses the similar kind of language that after our last thought has ceased and before the next arises, is there not a, a kind of vivid clarity, um, a bare, as I think he uses the phrase, a bare freshness that has never altered even a hair. And he says, ho, which is the Tibetan word for how amazing, ho, this is awareness. In other words, this is good news. It's natural, it's here. But he says, isn't it true also the, a thought suddenly arises. <coughs> a feeling suddenly arises. I'll, I'll embellish, embellish it a little bit. A thought or a feeling suddenly arises. If a thought or a feeling is noticed, and you probably could say this for yourself through the course of the retreat. Again, this is not so far away. It's not so exotic. A thought or a feeling arises. If it's noticed, no big deal. It reveals itself as just an, an aspect of that awareness. It's not outside, it's just another, it's another appearance. I interdependent with the knowing of that. It's just, it's just one of those changing experiences, those bubbles. Beautiful. And if you, if you see it as just an aspect of awareness, not a problem at all. But we often don't see it, he goes on to say. He says, if that is unrecognized, that little thought 
spreads out into um, or ordinary thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion. So it's literally in those simple moments that we enter into a, into a little imaginary world of ourselves. Again, I'll say it again, a world of somebody who doesn't exist. It doesn't mean you don't exist. You are all here in living color, pure presence, reflecting the light in such unique ways by all of your, your of course, all of your pleasure and pain and all, all the ways that the, the worldly winds have blown through your life, the pleasure and the pain and the gain and the loss, the praise and the blame and the fame and the shame, all of that has made you this unique expression, but you're here in full regalia. But you're, the way that can be experienced here is so, so utterly different than the version of you that plays in your mind. And that chain, that is when we mistake that version, which Mary Grace spoke about last night as the, in one aspect of the judging mind, the comparing mind, we construct, literally moment to moment, construct a person who is above, below, or equal to. Now, does that person really exist, that above, below? It's such a made-up little game. It's not just a little game because it's painful. That's why it's so essential that we don't necessarily stop that. We can't. But we can begin to see the difference between that little version of us and this, this Buddha that sits here in this room right now, this natural being that you are. I don't even want to use words. You can't even put words to what you are right now, except maybe the ones that you described, aware, balanced, free. That's all you really know right now, unless you consult your memory. And that's the virtual version. So my, one of my teachers used to say, you need, the, you need the thoughts and past to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. Because the boulders of the past rest on your chest and compress your heart and your freedom. It says, find the, find the source of these thoughts, not the historical source, but in the moment. What is that? I'm, I'm a terrible person. Is that terrible person really here, that not enough person? It's just a, it's just a dream. But that's where we, we go to for often for our um, identity or our sense of ourselves, and miss this right here that you have discovered in little pieces while you're here. Just a sense of, I like to call it the sense of enoughness, sense of sufficiency that, in the, that, we, that dawns in those moments that we're right here. Since I'm reading Hafiz tonight, I, he also has another poem called Stop Being So Religious says, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. So we have a religious devotion to our, our stories and we may, um, what, what we 
what we really need is to love that version of ourselves that plays in our mind too, to um, appreciate its, its futile attempts to uh, create safety and security, that our mind's preoccupation continually with trying to make it safe for the imagined me. But because that imagined me is tethered to thoughts and tethered to often to our very identified with this body, body's getting old. It's tethered to time often. You know, we talked a lot about how the whole identity is, the identity view is really bound up in getting from here to there and making sure that the future turns out right. Because it's uh, bound to time, it's, time is always running out and so we feel very insecure and it's uh, bound to thoughts and thoughts are so ephemeral. So it just keeps, our mind is continually looking for security. As old song put it, continually looking for love in all the wrong places. And it is truly, truly great good news that you have, at least for a few moments in the span of your life, stopped and really taken, taken stock of what you are in these immediate moments. What you are when you're not looking back and looking ahead even if you don't know how to put that in a cognitive way, in a reflective way, your, your body remembers, your being remembers, will remember this. You can call on this. As Kala Rinpoche said, you can, or whoever it is who said it, you can, once you've tasted this, you can always refer to it, to that ever-present, it is natural to us, ever-present openness, clarity. So the happiness of the Buddha is, um, is near, but he didn't see it so clearly. He was just like us. He was bound up in that, in that innocent, holy longing for relief and something reliable. And as we said that several times about how he it shook him up to, to recognize how everything he had tethered that self-view, that story to, was in so insecure to his body that was getting old and sick and dying. That just blew his mind. And then he realized that everything else that he went to to try to make himself feel better, and he had access more than anyone relative to his time, more than anyone in the world, maybe as much as anyone in the world could have to be able to satisfy his, his pleasures. And he realized in one of his reflections, he says, well, if I am subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death, because he knew it was going to happen to him, why should I search for that which is subject for, to decay and change? There's no relief in that. I mean, you could have rationalized, well, might as well have a good time as long as I'm going to die. But he had a different, it wasn't just to feel good. He had a longing to find some deeper meaning than just being born, getting sick, getting old and dying, getting bo being born, having a lot of experiences, and then having to give them all up. There's got to be something more involved. And it's that that, that compelled him. He, he experienced this classic feeling called samvega, which is this kind of 
shock and dismay at the futility of how, how it is that we normally um, miss, um, have this misplaced faith in things that are just so fleeting in our lives. But there was really not a lot of help around, except by having seen that mendicant, that monk, that person who, whose life exemplified going against that stream of just uh, of indulgence, he saw that there was something in the path of simplicity and renunciation. And remember when, we use, when I use the word renunciation, I like to think of the, the um, reflections of a wonderful Zen master named Suzuki Roshi where he says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away. So it's a, a shifting of our relationship. It's not, so you don't have to give, somebody wrote me a note, they said, you mean I don't have to give up football? <laughs> what we're giving up is that which causes tension in our mind, clinging. It is the, and the clinging comes from a misplaced faith, that, that that's what the Buddha's phrase was for it, a misplaced faith that the uh, happiness uh, of sense pleasures will be ultimately satisfying. But he did not, the Buddha did not dismiss, and I might as well, as long as I'm talking about this, the Buddha did not dismiss the happiness of sense pleasures. He even waxed about how that the cause of being able to enjoy our life and enjoy the world of sense pleasures, enjoy all the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and the the joy of aloneness, the joy of togetherness, the joy of singing and dancing and whatever it is, that that, that is the, the fact that we can even do that is the result of having uh, some degree of purity, some degree of what he called purity of action, that we have in some degree in our lives a foundation of um, of non-harming. He said that that was a proximate cause to the enjoyment of pleasures, is that you've been a good person for the most part. That you have, that, that you're not, your life is not so much reverberating from the effects of your unwise action that you're so caught up in, in guilt, remorse, regret, uh, in lies and um, in the, just the memory of having caused harm, that you're unable to actually open your senses and enjoy this world. That's quite extraordinary. So his, if you listen to what happened to the Buddha or what his, in his first teaching, he was actually offering in his teaching on the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path, he was offering a recipe to be able to, in the, at least the first portion, to be able to live a very happy life. And that was the section of the Eightfold Path that includes right action, basically non-harming action, right speech, and right livelihood. Knowing that that is, that when we, when we have a certain purity of action, he described it as giving rise to the 
the bliss of blamelessness, that there's a real joy and we offer to the beings in our life what he called the, um, uh, well, the bliss of blamelessness. We offer the quality of fearlessness, not in the sense that we're fearless, but in the sense that we give the gift to someone else that they can be fearless. They don't have to be afraid of us because they, when, they meet, when they meet us, when they engage with us, what you see is what you get. You're not, you're not trying to dance. You're just who you are. And that gives someone a great gift to be able to relax around you. So a lot of joy and happiness and sense of connection comes from the purity of action. We know the kind of misery that comes from from living unwisely, and what we can do with our speech, just one word, and what we can do when we cloud our perception, what we can do when we're not respectful of each other's property, all the different um, things that we can do to cause harm. So this was the foundation for being able to enjoy all kinds of happiness. But even this kind of happiness, all the extraordinary pleasures of living a life, the Buddha described as being um, ultimately an unreliable kind of happiness. He called the worldly happiness and all the kinds of pleasures that we can have, he called it lokiya sukha. Lokiya sukha. Lokiya means of the world, mundane, ordinary. But he also went deeper into unpacking or deconstructing this word lokia of the world. He described it as the happiness that depends on satisfying some kind of hunger. The happiness that I think I spoke of the other night that depends on condition being a certain way. If, they're the, if they are that way, you're happy. If you don't have them that way, you're unhappy. So it's, he also called this kind of happiness, the happiness of the pleasures of the world, as wonderful as they are, he called them the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery. Because the tendency of mind is to, uh, is to get bound up in them and to, to uh, have our sense of well-being, our sense of uh, ourselves so dependent on uh, satisfying hunger, that we are, we're often in the state of, um, of waiting, as I talked about the other night. We're often in a state of um, dissatisfaction. And even the pleasure that comes, the enjoyment that comes with most of our worldly pleasures, leaves in its wake, because it is in the nature of things for them to pass away, it leaves in its wake a feeling of loss, And it conditions, it literally plants a seed, cause and effect, it plants a seed of desire for more. And as long as our mind is in that state of desire for more, it is is in a state of hunger. It is in a state of dissatisfaction. Like the George Bilger, like your own VR. You probably noticed it here. I know there are a few VRs here. Come on, tell me. Fortunately, the Buddha did not stop with, um, with talking about the, the happiness of experiencing our senses that are open. He actually talked about, before I move on, he talked about four kinds of 
worldly happiness, that something that you can um, chew on in your life. And it has to do with this kind of purity of action. He said there are four kinds of happiness. There's the happiness of, and many people translate it differently, so this is just one version, the happiness of, of having resources. The happiness, that's one, the happiness of enjoying them and using them wisely. And a, a lot of the conversation is about using it for other people's benefit. So happiness of having resources, of having fun with them and using them for benefit. The third, which I think is quite relevant for our times now, is the happiness of being debt-free. Happiness of having resources, happiness of using them well, happiness of being debt-free. And then the fourth one was the, um, the happiness of blamelessness. And of those four, he said that the happiness of blamelessness is 16 times more valuable, more powerful. Interesting how he came up with that number. We must appreciate how intoxicated, though, we are by this world, this domain of, um, of sense pleasures, and regard ourselves uh, with, a lot of, um, with a lot of kindness, but, but begin to recognize what you really need when you look at it. Our mind will tell us continually that we need something to be happy. As Nisargadatta said, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe in their absence, we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality, it's just the opposite. Real happiness, is best expressed negatively as there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience, a questioner asks Mr. Gadatta, the experience of being open and empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy of, for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in openness, the emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause and what has no cause is immovable. Our practice points to this capacity, this as our, our natural state. He also says in one of his quotes, which I've loved through the years, he says, when your mind is momentarily free of our usual preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, 
you'll discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've been through this experience, you'll never be the same person again. I don't think you'll ever be the same person as you are after having a retreat. There's no turning back. (laughs) He says the unruly mind will break its peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return as long as the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. You understand that now. It's not not so exotic. Just you notice what it's like when your mind is more consistently right here. And we don't really go anywhere. We just don't leave. We just don't leave for a little bit. Fortunately, the Buddha didn't leave us with, you know, I'm alluding to the fact that, that he, it's not just this, we're not just spinning in a sea of, of uh, the happiness of slavery and bondage. That he didn't stop there. He described a kind of happiness, another kind of happiness that he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means above the world beyond the world, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of the world, a a happiness that is free of hunger, the happiness that is not dependent on conditions. And I think it's important, especially in our practice, given our our mind's tendencies, it's important to, to reflect on what kind of happiness you want. Because what we offer at Spirit Rock, what the real aim is, the byproduct may be all kinds of worldly happiness. What an exquisite day today. What a, I mean, it's so beautiful. We are just bathed in, in lovely light and temperature and weather. And, but what we really offer here, what the aim is, is the second kind of happiness. And if you're looking for the first one, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> you'll have some, but it's not that... Um, It's not that easy. And how did the Buddha discover this other kind of happiness? He sat. He sat under the Bodhi tree. After first trying all kinds of uh, attempts to get his mind to to maintain perfect stability, perfect one-pointedness, using all those qualities I talked about the other night, the aiming, the gathering, the sustaining, until the incredible uh, feeling of comfort, an incredible sense of rapture, an incredible sense of one-pointedness, this sense of one point where he started to feel part of everything. And he, he mastered these great states of concentration, But then he realized, in his just trying to work it out himself, he realized that that this kind of, um, this was so far superior to any kind of pleasure he'd ever known in in the lower realm, so to speak. Called it supramundane. Called it a kind of temporary enlightenment because there was not one shadow 
of any one of those hindrances, not a little, even a voice saying, oh, I wish this would last, or I want more. Or it was, his mind was just, just like a lake, completely like glass. But then he realized something. This was very essential for what allowed him to touch this other kind of happiness. He saw that even though this experience was so refined and so beautiful that states of concentration are, are onward leading and inspiring and, and they actually loosen certain uh, tendencies of mind to love complication and excessive stimulation, all these great byproducts, but he saw that, um, that, they were, that this was not the end and that's all that was being taught, that this is not the end, it's not freedom because even those states eventually pass away. Even those states were subsumed in his understanding under the umbrella of dukkha. Dukkha meaning uh, unsatisfactory, unreliable. And I won't say this. He said something that, to the effect that this, this kind of sukha is dukkha. And we often joke, he call it, we call it sukha dukkha. So we all, we have a lot of sukkha in practice. And we, he, he encourages us to, uh, from the teachings, to be careful. Let it be a springboard, enjoy it, but let it go. Let it be. Don't, mis, don't have a misplaced faith, even in concentration. So finally, he, after that, he tried a, a lot of uh, ascetic practices of denying himself the pleasure of concentration, denying himself the um, pleasure of the senses, and all it did was design, den denying himself food and nourishment, and he just got miserable. And then he realized that um, in order to have any kind of potential for awakening, as Mary Grace said last night, that approximate cause for being able to practice is some happiness, some delight, some comfort. And he took food and remembered a time when he was very comfortable, very serene. And yeah, you have to be somewhat comfortable to do this. It's, otherwise, it's too hard to bear. And we need to have gladness surrounding our life in as many ways that, as we can, but not to make it our devotion. So at that point, nobody around to teach him sat under the Bodhi tree. And he used the concentration, used the very tools we were using, gathering the attention, steadying it, he, and he entered into these wonderful states of, of concentration. But it's said in the teachings that he didn't let them take over. He didn't let the pleasure of it take over. Instead, he just used the strength of heart that was there, and he started to pay attention the same way that you've been paying attention over the course of this retreat. And what he found... I'm taking some liberties here. He found that the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind became, the steadier his mind became, until his mind, the very sense of, of his mind, was shining in its clarity, reflecting everything that was being known, all that whole sea of changing conditions. He was seeing it much more clearly. And you probably, your own clarity, you may not see it in all moments, but your clarity is likely increased. And it's from that kind of rubbing, that brightening that happens 
That's why everything is useful. Everything is, uh, is equally helpful. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing. If there's awareness there, it just keeps getting brighter and brighter. Until it was so clear that his mind, after having had such purity of mind, mind that wasn't moving at all before, he began to have what he later described as purity of view, where he was able to not just be steady and quiet and, and clear, but he was able to see everything very clearly and how it all worked. And he saw three things that we can all apply in our lives and to be in harmony with that, um, with that understanding that he had and that we can reflect on every day in our lives. It, we, can, we can rest a little bit. And what did he see? He saw that everything, everything that came into his mind, every little thing, all those stories, all the feelings, all those temptations in his mind, all the desires, all the aversion, all the doubt, he saw that everything had the nature to arise and the nature to pass away. Everything in constant change and impermanence. And that everything that was impermanent and changing if there was any kind of holding to it, caused rope burn, caused suffering. So that experience because, it, experience, because it's changing, can't be held to, can't be held on to, cannot give any lasting satisfaction, unreliable, unsatisfactory. And not only that, but not only does everything come and go and you can't hold on to it, but it seems... It's, it became clear to him that everything came and it went. All the sensation, everything comes and goes by itself. That there is no agency behind this process of endlessly changing causes, conditions, the flow of experience. And the more he paid attention, the steadier, brighter his mind became until his mind stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away, and fell into it. Uh, a wonderful state of what Mary Grace referred to last night of balance, of equanimity, of serenity, not moving toward or away from any experience. And he experienced in that moment a joy, the joy of equanimity, the joy of non-reactiveness, the joy of non-clinging that was far superior to the other kinds of happiness that he'd known. Why was it far superior? because it didn't depend on what was going on in his mind or body. It didn't depend on what he had or what he didn't have. It was unassailable, as one word that's sometimes used. And as he rested in that, um, that balanced, unshakable balance of mind, that mountain-like impartiality, still feeling the full flow of experience in life. It's not cut off from life at all. The full, everything is okay. Everything is included. And as he rested in that balanced state of mind, recognizing that he could not be defined by anything, his mind relaxed and it opened. And he discovered that that, uh, that, that reliable refuge, that deepest happiness that he had searched for through all that practice was none other than the very nature of his own mind. That the Buddha is the one who knows 
that's sitting here in this very room. And he let out this song at that moment. He let out a song, which I can't find now. <laughs> Something to the effect of, when you think about all the worlds we go to in our minds, and over, overlook where we actually are. He said, through many births, in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Oh, house builder. You know, the whole construction project of self. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your, your rafters are broken, the ridge pole destroyed, which is defilements and ignorance. Your, the mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings, uh, cessation, falling away of seeking, the seeker, it has come. And fortunately, uh, I think we may have even talked about this, at first he didn't think anybody could get it. But then he saw that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes, who if pointed back to ourselves, encouraged to practice purity of action, to train in purity of mind and steadiness, and to cultivate purity of view, all the elements of the Eightfold Path that we'll explain a little more tomorrow, that if anyone who does that can experience for themselves in this very life the sure uh, heart's release, that you can not only get a little glimpse fulfilled by every moment of mindful attention and being right here, but you can uh, gain some confidence and conviction that you don't need to leave here to be happy. Leave this moment. So I will um, end with a poem that I often end with when I talk about this topic. It's a poem from a, another Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness. 
this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own heart. There's nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous. Everything happens of itself. Let's just enjoy that. Nothing to do, nothing to undo. May all beings realize the highest happiness. May all beings see through the self-illusion. May all beings unleash their love. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. We have about 25 minutes of the last night of walking practice. Enjoy your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.